Two weeks ago, Pastor Mike taught us about a conversation that Jesus had with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a prominent Bible teacher who had heard about Jesus and probably heard him teaching firsthand and had heard about Jesus' miracles and probably even seen some of the miracles that Jesus was doing. And the public uh, interactions with Jesus were not enough for Nicodemus, so he came to him privately to discuss the things of God and to hear from what Jesus had to say. Mike focused on the part of their conversation where Jesus told Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And he finished up his message talking a lot about the illustration that Jesus used about how when the people of Israel were out in the desert on their way to the promised land and they were complaining and, uh, and grumbling against God, God had sent venomous snakes among them as a punishment and these snakes had bitten many of them. And, uh, but during that uh, incident, God gave them a means of healing. He had uh, instructed Moses to make this uh, bronze snake and to lift it up and so that when the people looked at the snake in the wilderness, trusting God to save them from their punishment, God saved them. If you missed that message, you should definitely get on the Clearwater Church app on your phone and, and listen to it and, and uh, catch up with our series. And last week, I was supposed to preach the sermon that I'm doing today, which continues the same passage from John chapter 3 and Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. But I was knocked out with some kind of uh, bacterial infection that I picked up in my time in Bolivia a couple weeks ago. So um, here we are a week later, continuing the passage. So, <coughs> so here we are in John chapter 3. And while the story of lifting up the snake is not one of the best-known stories in the Bible. It's kind of an obscure thing there. This next part is actually the best-known verse in the Bible. And here it is, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And our theme today uh, is taken from this passage. It is the God who loves. We're in this series about uh, the God who is there, and we are learning about various uh, aspects of God and things about God, and this week's theme is the God who loves. Now, at first glance, that's a very simple idea. Uh, God's love is one of the most widely accepted thoughts about God uh, today. Uh, but on the other hand, it is such a common thing to say that sometimes we really aren't very clear in our thinking about God's love and what it means to say that God loves us. So what is it that we really mean when we say that God loves the world? Does God love everyone the same? And if God loves everyone, what does that mean about sin and judgment and forgiveness? And on a personal level, uh, does God love me? Why does God love me? Is there something I need to do to make sure that God loves me? Would God ever stop loving me if I did something to anger him? So today we're going to take a look at some of what the Bible has to say about the God who loves and try to answer some of these questions. Now when the Bible says that God loved the world, what does that mean? When God says, I love you, world... What is he saying? 
Let's imagine a human example and see what we can learn from that. So let's imagine a scene where a newly married couple is on their honeymoon, walking on the beach in Maui with the sunset out over the Pacific Ocean and that beautiful uh, Hawaiian sunset going. And the guy turns to his new bride and he says, I love you. What is he saying? Well, he's saying a lot of things, but part of what he's saying is that he is attracted to her, that he finds her lovely. And if the sunset is just right and he's feeling especially romantic, he might elaborate a bit. He might say something like, the color of your eyes, I could just sink into them. The smell of your hair, the dimples when you smile, there's nothing about you I don't love. Your personality, it is so wonderful. You're such an encourager. You've got this laugh that can fill a room with smiles. It's so contagious. Right, right? Is, when he says that he loves her, he means something like that, right? He, he is declaring that he finds her irresistibly attractive because of her many beautiful characteristics. What he's not saying is something like this. Quite frankly, you're the most homely creature I know. Your bad breath could stop a herd of rampaging elephants. Your knees remind me of a crippled camel. You have the personality of Genghis Khan. You don't have any sense of humor. You're a miserable, self-righteous, narcissistic, hateful woman. And I love you. No, when the man declares his love for his bride, at least in part, he is declaring that at that moment, he finds her lovely. So, is that what's happening in John 3.16? Is God saying, world, your scintillating personality, your intelligent conversation, your wit, and you're cute. I love you. I can't imagine heaven without you. When God declares his love for the world, is he declaring that the world is lovable and deserving of his love? Well, a lot of people seem to think that this is more or less implied. If God loves us, it must mean that we are valuable and worthy of love. We hear this kind of thing, especially when people are trying to encourage us to have good self-esteem. You are a good, beautiful person. And the proof is that God loves you. And if God thinks you're pretty great, then you are pretty great. But is that what the Bible is saying? When we see the phrase, the world, in the Bible, what is it referring to? Well, it's not simply planet Earth or, or all the people that live on it. The world is a loaded term in the Bible, and it means the world full of sinful people. It's the human-centered, created order that God has made and that has rebelled against him in hatefulness and idolatry resulting in broken relationships, infidelity, and wickedness. The world, in the technical sense that the word has in the Bible, is not a lovely place full of lovely people. So when the Bible declares that God loves the world, it is a powerful statement. God loves the world despite the lack of deserving. God loves the world not because of the quality of the people in the world, but because God is the God who loves. It is part of the core of who God is. 
When God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is what he said about himself from the book of Exodus. It says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God loves the world because he is a loving God, not because the world deserves to be loved. And that is why he loves you, too. God loves you because he is a loving God, not because of your lovely traits. Is that good news or is that bad news? It's good news. And let me tell you why. If it was up to us to be good enough to deserve God's love, then, well, it would be up to us to be good enough to deserve God's love. And if we fell short of God's standard, we would be out of luck. But it is not up to us. It is up to God. And the God of the Bible, the God who is there, is a God who loves even the rebellious world. And he loves you, and he loves me, no matter how much we fail to deserve his love. Let me tell you, news does not get much better than that. Now, the next thing I want to point out in John 3.16 is how God expressed that love to the world. It's the little word so in the verse that is key to this point. It says, God so loved the world. In other words, God loved the world like so, or this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. So the giving of Jesus is the measure of God's love for the world. There are two ways or, or that Jesus loved or sorry, that Jesus shows us God's love for the world. First, he came and lived among us and demonstrated love by his interactions with people. How did Jesus show love to the people around him? Well, he showed them acceptance while at the same time challenging them to turn from their sins. We see that in the fact that sinful people were drawn to Jesus. Several times the gospel stories tell us that tax collectors and sinners, which is their phrase for all of the people who had completely rejected religion and following God, they were just going their own way and living uh, according to their own desires and ignoring uh, God's uh, call on their lives and the morality of the Bible. These people, these tax collectors and sinners, they were gathering around Jesus. And we see a very specific example of that in the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. When Jesus met him, he immediately showed him love by choosing him from among the crowd to host him at his home for dinner. That was a very big deal for the famous rabbi, Jesus, to share a meal at the home of a disreputable person like Zacchaeus. You see, Jesus did not reject him because of his sins. He seeks him out of the crowd and shows his love and acceptance to him. But 
At that dinner, Zacchaeus repented from his sins and declared that he would return four times all the money that he had cheated people out of in his tax collections. Now, we aren't given a full transcript of what led to that decision. I'm sure there were things said between Jesus and Zacchaeus at that dinner and, there, and things that, that we don't uh, know exactly. But clearly, it was Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus that led him to, his, uh, to abandon his sin and to make reparations. And Jesus had similar encounters with many people. Uh, for, for example, you know the story from John chapter 4 that we uh, looked at a few weeks ago about Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman that he met at the well. He engaged her in a spiritual conversation, showing her his love and respect and offering her uh, the living water that he had to give. But he also challenged her sinful relationship with the man that she was living with without being married to. Now, some people don't think that true love would challenge people this way, pointing out their flaws and their mistakes and their sins. In God's self-declaration to Moses, didn't he say that he is abounding in love and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin? Didn't Jesus himself say, do not judge or you too will be judged? Elsewhere, the Bible teaches us that above all, we should love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over sins. It doesn't point them out, right? So, uh, so of course, according to this way of thinking, you know, we've just talked about how God's love for us is not dependent on our moral performance. So, so, so how is Jesus confronting people about their sins a loving way to treat them? How is that showing them love? Well, one part of the answer is here in the following verses from John chapter 3, starting with verse 17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come to condemn us. Well, that fits with the perception that God's love is not judgmental. However, this verse also says that he came to save us. That means that the world needs to be saved. Verse 18, For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus came to save the world, but the whole world will not be saved. The way it's described here is that everyone is either condemned or not condemned. That's the language used in these verses. Jesus did not come to condemn, but to save. You see, here's what the Bible is telling us. The world stands condemned already because of sin. But God loves the world. But his love for the world did not mean that he could simply overlook or ignore the sins of the world. Instead, his love caused him to give his son. The son came to provide a way for people to be saved from their condemnation. When people believe in Jesus, they move from condemned to not condemned. And that is love. Love is seeing the people you love in trouble, trouble that they have caused ourselves, it is our own fault, but God says, I love you, 
and I want to help you to get out of that trouble. I will send Jesus to pay the price for your sin so that for all those who believe in him, their condemnation will be reversed. And so it is on the cross that we see the ultimate expression of God's love. It was on the cross that Jesus made it possible for us to find payment for our sins and escape from our condemnation. That is why a cross, a cruel means of torture and execution, is the symbol for God's love. That's why we have a cross standing here at the back of our, of our church service uh, to remind us of the love that God had for us. God loved this sinful world, and so he gave his son to die on the cross, taking our sins on himself and making it possible for us to be saved. That is the heart of Christianity. Why did God do that? Because we are so lovely and desirable and deserving? No, because the God who is there is the God who loves. It is the great and glorious character of God that motivated him to love us and save us. It is not dependent on us. But what about the people in this verse who do not believe and are condemned? Because while we rejoice at the availability of salvation, the Bible is clear that not all will be saved. God's love provides the offer of salvation. It does not force salvation on us. The next verses in John 3 further explain this. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. God's offer of salvation is rejected by many. Why? People choose to stay in the darkness and continue their sin rather than turn to Jesus in faith and coming into the light. When Jesus confronted Zacchaeus with his sin, Zacchaeus came into the light and turned away from his sin. And Jesus declared, Today salvation has come to this house. But there were others that Jesus encountered who did not turn from their sins. I think of one man who, who we don't know his name. All we know him as is the rich young ruler. That's how he's described in the, in the gospel stories. And when Jesus met him, he had a, a brief interaction with this guy, and he could see that this man's sin was greed. And so he challenged him to give up his possessions. The Bible says that that man went away sad. He was confronted by his sin, and he chose to stay in the darkness rather than turn to the light. So how does that relate to the love of God? Does God love these people that reject his salvation? Well, in the story of this rich young ruler who, uh, from the Gospel of Mark, Right in the middle of their conversation, it says this. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. So do you see that? It's, it's, it's right there in black and white. First, Jesus loved him. Then he challenged him in his sin. And when the man chose his wealth over Jesus, did Jesus stop loving him? No, he still loved him, but he did not save him from his sins. Jesus loved this young man just like he loved Zacchaeus, just like he loves you, just like he loves me. He wants all of us to be saved, to believe in him, and to not be condemned. The Bible says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He loves us so that his desire for all of us is to repent and turn away from our sins. So what then is the difference between those who are condemned and those who are not condemned? It is that those who are not, is it that those who are not condemned are not sinners? No, we've already said that it is those who have repented of their sins who are saved. So clearly they must have sins to repent of. It is those who are sinners uh, like Zacchaeus who are saved. So it is a question of having sins in your past, but turning away from them when you have an encounter with Jesus and then living without sin from there on out so that it's up to you to show that you're deserving of forgiveness by sticking to your commitment to turn away from sin and live a good moral life after we meet Jesus. No, the key to salvation is that we put our faith in Jesus, which does involve choosing him over our sin, but it does not involve living a perfect sinful, sinless life. God does not love us and save us because we've done such a good job of leaving our sins behind. God loves us because he is a God of love, and he saves us because he loves us, and we have responded to the offer of salvation in faith. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works. Our moral performance does not save us or keep us from being saved. It's not about our moral performance. So, we should be secure in God's love and in our salvation. Here's how this is discussed in the, the, the biblical book of Romans. It says, Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then a few verses later is the famous section that says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. He loves us in such a way that he has compassion on us in our sin. And he provides a way for us to be saved 
from the consequences of our sin. And that way is dependent entirely on putting our faith in Jesus and believing in him so that we will not be condemned. And when we choose to believe in Jesus, God's love is made complete and we are put on track to spend eternity with God in paradise. So here's the question for you today. In what are you trusting for your salvation? Are you trusting in being good enough, in in being worthy of God's love and forgiveness and salvation? Or are you trusting entirely in the character of God and his love for you and his provision of salvation through Jesus' death on the cross? If you are trusting in Jesus... If you are not not putting your faith in your own goodness, your own ability to turn away from your sin, or your own ability to, 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 to be worthy of God's love, if you're putting your faith in Jesus, then you can be completely secure in your salvation and in your destiny with God in heaven. Because it is not dependent on you, It is dependent on the character of God who is unfailing and and, and trustworthy to save you.